Much of our lives, we spend chasing it, wanting it, wanting more of it maybe, but we rarely stop and ask ourselves, what does money mean to me? Like it or not, you, me, and everyone else, we all have a relationship with money. And for the most part, it's a complicated one. My name's Sean Maslick. Welcome to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. As a certified financial planner, I want to take you on a journey as we throw out the technical finance books and shift our focus towards our minds, our money, and what matters most. If you're looking to improve your relationship with money and build true wealth, you're in the right spot. Finances does not need to be the most hated F-word. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word Podcast. Thanks for joining me this week. Before we get into this week's show, if you've been enjoying the guest, the show, please, I would love if you could do two things. Number one, if you can leave a review at Apple Podcast. And number two, if you know someone who you think would benefit or enjoy the podcast, please share the podcast with them. It'd mean a lot to me and our guest. All right, on to the guest this week. My guest this week is Amanda Clayman. She's a psychotherapist and a financial wellness coach. And thanks to a haircut that cost her nearly $19,000. Yes, that's right. $19,000. You need to listen to this episode to find out what I mean by that. But thanks to that haircut, Amanda transformed her career and has made a living working with clients to discuss what does money mean to them. Such a simple but yet deep question. What does money mean to you? It seems like our lives are becoming busier and busier, and rarely do we take the time to reflect on that very question, what does money mean to me? During this episode, you will hear how Amanda helps her clients navigate this critically important question, what does money mean to me? Enjoy. Welcome back to the Most Hated F-Word podcast. This is take number two because... I want to make sure I could say Amanda's name properly, even though it's easy. Anyways, Amanda, welcome to the show. Amanda is a widely recognized leader in the field of financial therapy. Her approach as a clinician is to decode how thoughts, feelings, and associations shape our financial choices and identify how those patterns both serve and limit us. She is a LinkedIn learner lynda.com, author of several financial wellness courses and the financial wellness expert for She Knows Media, where she writes a financial therapy advice column. Her work has been featured in such media outlets as CNBC, Fox News, The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Real Simple, and Forbes. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sean. I am thrilled to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm happy to be or to have you. You came as a referral, I guess, from one of the previous guests, and we had a little conversation a couple or a week or I think a week ago, and mm-hmm. I thought that we had a lot of common, I guess, thinking around the world and finances. But as I was researching you and your work, I came across something that is much different than what I would have done. And I heard you had a $19,000 haircut. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) That doesn't sound appealing. That's not aspirational for you. Well, I think maybe our our listeners might think, how can there be a haircut for $19,000? 
I have gone to some interesting barbers that charge, you know, more, but uh, $19,000 is not really what we charge in Canada for a haircut. So why not? <laughs> Let's start there. I mean, there's so many places that we can start. I'm interested to hear your story like your life story and how you came to be where you are in the finance world. But let's start with this $19,000 haircut. How on earth does someone, I know you spend time in New York, so maybe that's the mm-hmm. answer. But Right, just fancy hair. <laughs> Everything that expensive in New York. But how did you get a $19,000 haircut? Well, hilariously, so I, I have had sort of high maintenance hair my whole life because I have short hair and I usually in pre-pandemic times uh, colored my hair and did all kinds of things. So I, I have legitimately spent a lot of money, I think, on my hair. But I, I can't say that I ever spent $19,000 at one time on my hair. And the, But the reason that, that I talk about the $19,000 haircut was because it was actually a really, really terrible... I mean, not only would you not want to pay for the haircut that I got, but you wouldn't even accept money for it. Because what happened is that my mother came to visit me in New York and I asked her to give me a haircut because she used to cut my hair when I was a child. And the haircut that she gave me was so terrible that I ended up having just like an emotional breakdown about it because the secret was that my financial life was in such shambles at that point, that not only was I in debt of about $19,000, which was 1990s money. Mm -hmm. So I was in debt, but I had also sort of like bounced checks or or owed money in all of these other contexts, including to my hairdresser. So -hmm. the reason I had even asked my mother in the first place to cut my hair is because I couldn't go back and get my hair kind of cleaned up and reshaped. And short hair people know that like you cannot neglect getting your hair trimmed and, and reshaped. It is it is definitely a commitment that you make when you are a short hair person. And so this was really, for me, kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. Like this was the moment where I, I realized like, I am not in a position where I can even undo this thing, which feels so catastrophic to me, like in, in a sense that I couldn't hide this. Like I was an expert at like sort of just digging holes and like hiding all these little secrets of my financial life everywhere. So nobody knew the chaos that I was in, but I felt like walking down the street with this terrible, terrible hair clearly communicated to the world. Here is a lady who does not have her life together. So this was, (laughs) this was what it took for me to really confront the fact that I was in over my head. I did not know how to manage money. I was making all kinds of mistakes and I was living in complete shame and denial about that. So so my mother may have not given me a hairstyle that I wanted that day, but what she did really do is support me. Like she was really surprised, of course, to find out all of this. And she she got right to work with me in terms of like, let's look at your numbers. Let's look at your bills. Like, you don't need to feel so shut down and overwhelmed by this. Let's figure out a plan here. So I, I ended up, as a result of that terrible haircut, <laughs> paying <laughs> off approximately $20,000 worth of credit card debt and getting my financial life on track to the point where I was like, this is really interesting. This Maybe this should be a job. Uh-uh. So mm-hmm. was that the impetus to lead you down the path of where you are today? Yes, it's it's funny. So I, I never really do anything halfway. Mm-hmm. So I went from not 
caring about money and avoiding money and, and really doing everything that I could to give no attention to money to being fascinated by money and fascinated by money in terms of, of the emotional dimension and the psychological dimension and feeling like that's the world that most of us live in, in our money, where we're not given any sort of like insight or vocabulary or skills. And once I started paying attention to that, I really, I felt like Neo in the matrix. Like I just all of a sudden saw this code that was running behind not just my own financial choices and behavior, but started to help, started to be very curious about other people's and then to get mental health training, et cetera. So that was sort of the beginning of that path. Extremely interesting. And something I want to point out that I guess spoke to me is you said you were living in denial and shame, having these outstanding amounts on your credit card, bouncing checks. I can tell it was in, you said 90s haircut. So the checks yeah. reinforces that it was oh, the 90s. Yeah. There were checks. Checks were still happening. Then. <laughs> but your mom to come in and you said she got to work and helped you and really took a supportive, I guess she supported you in this. And mm-hmm. I think it's a, I guess a testament to what your, your mom's ability to see that you needed support where I feel like a lot of times the knee jerk reaction is to be like, why are you doing this? How could you have done this? Yeah. Um, like just fueling that shame. And I wonder if you could speak to how your mom supporting you and not dumping more gasoline, so to speak, on the shame yeah. really allowed you to pick yourself up and then just compare that with what do you like? I know I, I personally see that often in the personal finance space is like, oh, you didn't pay your mortgage off yet or oh, you didn't do this. And we're just dumping more and more shame, which is like holding us back. So I guess let's speak to how just addressing these things and being supportive can really help someone uplift them out of these financial situations. Yes, I feel like we don't give enough attention to the opportunity for reparenting that can happen with a lot of young people who get themselves into financial trouble. So my decision, for example, let me just sort of back up one step to set the stage. When I graduated from college, I made the decision to move to New York and I didn't have a job. When I did it, I didn't have any savings. I mean, there were a number of things that I was just completely naive about in the world of money. But I thought, I'm smart and resourceful. I'm educated. Like I will, I will land on my feet. I will figure it out. And my parents never said to me, this is a terrible idea. And let me tell you why, because they felt like she's 22 years old and she can make her own decisions. And we don't really get to, that was the, the kind of parenting they practice is like, if you are a grown up, you get to make your own calls and, and we're not. It's not in our family culture to, to quote unquote interfere in that. So when I then got in kind of over my head, I did in many ways land on my feet and, and did find a job and was really finding some professional footing. And there were lots of things that were really going well for me at that point in my life, but money was just kind of a place where, where I felt like I was very much a late bloomer. And, and in all of those dilemmas, I hadn't figured things out. So, so when I started to have this sort of like big reveal of chaos to my mother, what I fully expected from her was like, how could you do this? Like we taught you so much better than this. And by taught me, I think what they did was share their own fears and anxieties mm-hmm. about 
a lack of uh, financial control about going into debt, et cetera. My parents had both grown up poor and were very frugal. So, so what they probably thought were lessons about being financially financially responsible were for me lessons about how scary money was and how money is something that you just kind of worry about. And even when things are kind of going well, because for my family, we objectively, by a certain point in my family trajectory, had a good deal of financial comfort. And yet my parents were still very stressed about money. So what I learned from them initially was like, oh boy, this is a big topic. and I do not want to go there. So I learned financial avoidance from them, even though they wouldn't have said that they were teaching me that. Mm-hmm. So when my mom and I were having this sort of like putting our, our heads together here, it was the first time in many ways that somebody had actually said like, here are your bills. This is your budget. It's literally like, it's this tiny sheet of paper. Like your financial life is that not that mm-hmm. complicated. But the thing that was crazy, which had ne- like truly came out of left field, never in my wildest dreams would I have thought of this. What she did was put enough money in my sort of discretionary budget for myself for me to be able to reliably kind of feed and clothe myself and get haircuts. <laughs> <laughs> Truly, the key to my financial stability <laughs> is hair maintenance. Um, but but that sort of like regular self-care and then to be able to work on paying back debt. Mm. What I was trying to do was use a budget as a, a bludgeoning tool of sending every penny that I could away to these credit card companies and then to give up or something would come along that sort of didn't fit in this budget. I just had this like terrible, you know, cycle of, of just continually getting in myself in trouble by trying to put too much money toward debt and not having enough money to take care of myself. So that was a key piece of learning that I lacked that she stepped in and taught me when I was 26, 27 years old. And now when I talk to a lot of families who are in similar situations, first of all, I think that a lot of times the reaction that comes from parents around like, you shouldn't do this, if only you'd done this. um, Mm -hmm. I think part of that is probably coming from the parent's own fear of seeing a child who's an adult child who's getting themselves in trouble and just having their own reaction to that. But the other piece is like, you don't know what your kid knows and doesn't know as an adult. You may think that they learned all of this when they were younger, but until they're in a place where they are independent or semi-independent and need to put it into practice, that's when you actually have an opportunity, I think, to engage with your adult child and say sort of, how's it going? And and to have enough of a, a trusting relationship where those kinds of conversations don't feel as fraught with potential judgment mm-hmm. as I was afraid of. And that was one of the things that kept me so locked in silence. I've jotted down quite a few little, not little things that you were saying here. And well, there's a saying that I love, Sean, that is, may the bridges I burn light the way for others. Yeah, <laughs> That's how well, I feel that, here. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I go back to your mom and you're in a quite a vulnerable spot at that time. You, you're in debt. You have a terrible haircut. Uh, <laughs> terrible. And if we tell uh, Dr. Brad Klontz, who has done, we talked on the show a lot quite a, about him. He talks about the financial flashpoints. What if like, 
financial flashpoint that was for you and also an inflection mm-hmm. point mm-hmm. that if your mother would have came in there given you the, the 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 bad haircut but then thrown like what i hear your mother did was have some compassion she inquired mm-hmm. she, about like why are things like this and if she didn't do that who knows which way it would have went maybe it would have just spiraled and further perpetuated the shame. So I, I really can see that in you and feel that yeah. when you're talking that that compassion comes out when you're dealing with, I guess, yourself now and your clients. Uh-huh. I, I want to transition in because we're now talking about uh, uh, your philosophies around dealing with others. I, I've also read that you deal a lot with artists, uh, your mm-hmm. client. And mm-hmm. I'm curious what got you to be attracted or drawn to this particular audience. And and I wonder, this idea of compassion, if that helps you speak to your audience a lot more, like having compassion when you have these conversations. I've heard other money experts being like, pull up your bootstraps, pay your bills, put it away, you know, save this much of money. And, you know, I, I personally don't feel like that works. <laughs> I think it needs a level of compassion. But this is a long question. How did you end up working with artists? And... What can you teach me and our audience or what can you share with me and my audience that you've learned from working with more artistic people? Money is usually a scientific, a statistical approach, but I'm, I'm interested to hear what have you learned from dealing with uh, the clientele that you work with more on the artistic side of money? Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I love about working with artists, and this extends to to freelancers, entrepreneurs, like all of those people for whom money is not just a source of income and that their money doesn't follow a predictable structure. Mm. So for many of us, if we think about the activities of, of budgeting, one side is stable. That income side is relatively stable. And based on the stability that's on that one side of the equation, then we get to make decisions on the other side, the outflow side of the equation mm-hmm. that, that conform to the conditions and circumstances of the first. I find it really fascinating when people have variability on both sides, because that is, especially for someone who's interested in the psychology of money and the cognitive processes about money, that is where you are fully in charge of the whole spectrum of your financial life in many ways, meaning you are making decisions about balancing potentially multiple sources of income, episodic work work that is of high value to you, meaning like for artists that it it may be artistically fulfilling and maybe it's also high paying, but maybe it's not high paying at all. But And maybe you get almost nothing for it, but you get to qualify for health insurance. And, and so there's, there's complexity really on, on the income side and the earning side, as well as complexity on all of the decisions you make about how money is going to go out. And it also touches on all of these elements of identity, of artistic expression, et cetera. So, so I love artists and money because I feel like that is where I do my highest performance mm. at what I do, because that's when we're dealing with, with all of those factors, basically on level 10, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Nothing's holding still. It's all like a marvelous sort of like human dynamic, creative, construction. Mm. And who wouldn't want to do that? (laughs) It's making me want to go work with artists. (laughs) It's really, I mean, if you are curious about 
people. And if you are curious about money, like it allows one, I think, to to not have to choose. And it uh, it's the kind of thing where where if you are attracted to complexity, here's a wonderful place to find it. There was a time when I worked pretty much exclusively with artists because I was in a social service setting where we, that was the population that we serve. And even now I find that the time that I spent really, really focusing in on artists and money has enabled me to kind of anticipate and be out ahead of a lot of larger trends in our economy as we move toward more sort of gig and freelance and entrepreneurial and portfolio careers. And I think that a lot of people who have been kind of set up not to, well, people who have been set up to crave stability in their financial life and who are not finding it there can, we can learn a lot from how people have managed variability and sort of look at it not as like, oh my gosh, my life is unpredictable. So therefore I must be doing something wrong or I need to treat this like a crisis. It's like, no, you just maybe don't have the approach and the skills to manage a lot of variability. But guess what? People have been managing variability for a really long time and we can Mm -hmm. learn from them. And let's just sort of expand your skill set to incorporate these other things. What are one way, two ways that people do manage that variability? I know People say, I don't know where the next paycheck's coming. I don't know where this is coming. And how do you work with people to quiet that inner critic or that voice inside of their head that's saying, like, you can't stop until you find out where that next paycheck is coming? There's a lot that we can do structurally. So I've done a good deal of training in cognitive behavioral therapy. So looking at how how our thoughts and emotions really interact and how our belief structure is and it's superimposed on that to give those those thoughts and feelings a narrative, a kind of meaning, um, an interpretation. These are all places where like, I don't, first of all, I don't treat those things as an indication that something's wrong. So when people feel anxiety, for example, I try to reframe that with my clients as this is a signal to pay attention. It's not an indicator that something is wrong. It's just the way that our biochemistry works to sort of create this sensation, this this emotional kind of sensation that is unpleasant. And the purpose behind that unpleasant sensation is to sort of snap us out. It gives us a motivation to go, ooh, I don't like this feeling. What do I need to do in order to address it? So anxiety is supposed to bring our attention somewhere, but we shouldn't let it be the arbiter of whether or not something is actually wrong. At that point, we just need to train ourselves to sort of kick that upstairs into another process that's going to allow us to actually analyze the situation and what our response should be. So one, we sort of start by by reframing that feeling. Number two is we create a practice. We like We can create a container in our lives where we allow this this process to happen. So I'm a big, big proponent of putting time and attention towards your money. Like mm-hmm. we need a way of reliably reflecting on what's coming in and out of examining the choices that we've made in as much of a neutral and compassionate place as we can to look at how we sort of automatically and unconsciously use money to take care of ourselves and and balance all of these 
different needs that we have in our lives, and then to start to cast our attention forward to predict and prepare for like, oh, what's coming up for me? Is there some, do I see like an interruption in income? Do I have an expense that's sort of not a regular expense? And to start to bring that into our sense of awareness so that these things don't A, surprise us, because anything surprising, again, is going to sort of trigger that anxious Mm. response. And within that framework too, give ourselves the time to identify any knowledge or skills gaps. So like you were using the example of somebody who says, I cannot relax or I cannot rest until I know where my next paycheck is coming from. Like I, as part of my work, sometimes orient people inside of a, like you are here kind of a framework. Like, are you... Do you just have safety needs? Meaning like you just need to make sure that money is going to the money that you have, any available money goes toward like housing, health insurance, Mm -hmm. food, et cetera, like those essentials. Then we get to the point where we're just sort of basically solvent, where like we have enough money coming in or we have enough savings on hand to be able to cover our regular expenses for a period of time. Then we start to stabilize that by having a contingency fund or a cushion or an emergency fund. And then we can start to think about long-term like savings and investing for mm-hmm. the future. So so we need to know which of those sort of categories we're in so we know what to work on. So that and I literally have this in columns for people and when you get to the bottom of the column, it says stop. So you do things like you're opening all of your mail or looking at your account statements when they're coming in. You are paying your bills on time. If you can't pay your bills on time, you are still like in contact with like a creditor or service provider to let them know what's happening. If you need to go into debt, you have an idea of what the debt is. Like like we identify ahead of time, what are the things that you can do? And when you get through all that list and you still feel anxious, then you know that the problem that you're trying to solve is not a financial problem. It's a feeling problem. Mm. And so then we turn our attention to the feeling side and go like, okay, do you need to go for a walk? Do you need to call a friend for support? Like, let's not misidentify a need for emotional care and support as a need for a financial solution because we're not always in control of when and how a financial solution is going to present itself. Wow, really, really interesting. And I think that was my answer to artists. Oh my gosh, I landed that in a very different... (laughs) I think I I asked another question in there. So (laughs) I, I like your container analogy and... I really liked your column you explained there and mm-hmm. where you at and like getting people to self-identify, which I, you, you just ooze compassion when you're talking, by the way, like from your clients. And I think it's just so important that you take the time to have the clients just like meet them where they're at saying, here's where I'm, I'm at the bottom end. I can only think about these bills or like you mentioned, mm-hmm. as opposed to like, if we go back to that shame being like, well, why aren't you saving more? Why aren't you paying, saving 50% of your money? I really like that you have a lot of empathy when you approach these conversations. And I could see that by just that question there, where are you at? But then I also like when you talked about, and I'm curious your experience with this, when you talked about what can you focus on? Like you asked them, like, what can you do? And I think that's really good for building that self-efficacy or that inner locus of control. How are, what's your experience when 
you start working with someone who maybe is paralyzed or scared or ashamed of money like you were Mm -hmm. in the 90s with the haircut. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, when you feel like, oh, I can't do it. And like that narrative that you've talked about is going through our minds. Like I'm never going to be able to get myself out of this debt. Mm -hmm. I'm never going to be. But if you can just do that reframe of here's the things you can control. Sure, there's things we can't, like we, you know, I'm not saying people can control everything because there's a lot of external mm-hmm. things we can't. But when you just do that reframe of let's focus on what you can control. And I mm-hmm. guess this might lend to on our earlier call when we talked a bit about positive psychology. So more so focusing on the strengths mm-hmm. and the attributes that someone can do right now. What's your experience on, I guess, the level of change in a relatively mm-hmm. short period of time you see? There are a couple of ways that I think of a response to that question. Number one is like, I, I think that it's really important to have an ability to, to assess as a helper where a person is at when they feel paralyzed, especially if you're working with people who have a history of trauma, who maybe, you know, and, and trauma can look like like many things. Um, it doesn't just mean like something terrible and, and violent has happened to you. There can be developmental trauma too, where like you had a need as a child that was not met consistently. And you sort of like, you adapted to that deficit or that need that wasn't met in a way that shaped you for who you are for the rest of your life. So that things that you think of as just like, these are capacities that everybody has. Well, no, not everybody has those capacities. When someone is overwhelmed, when someone is avoidant, when someone is shut down, that doesn't mean all the same things for the Mm -hmm. people who are exhibiting that sort of a response. So that's number one. Number two, let's sort of move away from like, this is an indication of something that's a little more serious that takes a, a more like professional kind of mental health response. I find that there's so much insight that can be found through the process of really engaging with our money in a deeper way, as opposed to just treating it like some sort of math problem that we have to solve. And, and when we are shut down, I help people, I mean, I've been in this business for a long time. I've got a <laughs> lot of worksheets. <laughs> so there's another worksheet that sort of takes these, it's like, like my tools and principles sheet that, that identifies, for example, like when you are stuck and the issue is complexity, like this is a big problem. It has lots of parts and I feel overwhelmed by it. Um, then we have a kind of like breaking it down approach. Like how can we segment this into smaller bits? How can we start to like assign these smaller bits into timeframes, et cetera? So we, we can work on the structure of the problem. That's one approach. We can have this baby steps problem. So when you feel emotionally overwhelmed, when you feel like I can't, it's too much, there's no way. When you feel resistance and and rebellion coming up of like, I don't want to even have to do this. So I'm just not going to, and nobody can make me. I feel all sassy even as I say that, because I am (laughs) one who often (laughs) is like in the you can't make me kind of response to things. Baby steps is a way of going, all right, you're not going to do the big thing. Let's find a smaller thing that you can do. So we still like, we can create forward momentum. We can find a way to kind of keep your hand on the rudder and not just say, all right, I give up. I'm not going to do this because we modify the task and, and modifying the task can also help people feel in control. It gives them a sense of, of authority and safety within something that may feel very unsafe mm-hmm. for them. We can identify like, do I need a resource? Is the reason that I'm stuck? 
because I don't have an answer to this question or I need legal advice or et cetera. Like, like we, we keep turning this stuck state around and looking at it from, from multiple points of view to identify what's going on with the stuck because just pushing your way through it, I find is a, if that was all it took, you probably would have done it by now. Mm. But also I feel like, like human beings are very wise in the ways that we, we manage lives of such complexity and we balance all of these competing needs and we're interacting with a material world that is imbued with a tremendous amount of symbolic meaning. <laughs> and we're sort of like creating these meaning structures on top of all of it. And so I think if we put ourselves in a position in our lives of, I also just, I'm curious about why I do these things that I do. All behavior has meaning. All financial behavior has meaning. If I'm doing something here, let me try to be curious about myself and look at this as an opportunity to get to know myself better instead of trying to like impose this person, this idea of a person that we think we're supposed to be just trying to mandate that. That's, that's such a less interesting, less authentic life for ourselves than I think if, if we, if we embrace money specifically as a path of personal growth and discovery, as opposed to a problem to be solved mm-hmm. or a task to check off our list. Mm-hmm. Wow. What a gift to do that, eh? to get to know yourself mm-hmm. on that level. Yeah. I literally like, I do not understand how financial advisors aren't students of psychology and how mental health practitioners are not deeply fascinated by money. But these seem to be areas where there's, there's almost a like, no, I just want to solve problems over here. Yeah. (laughs) I want to look at that other stuff or I just, I'm more comfortable on this side. I don't want to go over there. It's so fascinating. I, um, I mentioned Dr. Brad, Brad Clonson. He was on the podcast a couple. Oh, a while ago now, but, um, in one of his books, and I think we talked about this on the podcast, he said like in 2000, he invested a lot of his money, student, like to win back his student loans because everyone was mm. making money in the dot com boom mm-hmm. and he lost it. And he said, how does like a, like a, a PhD educated individual do something so irrational? And he said he started to go study it and realized that there really wasn't papers on financial psychology. And he just said that. He had thought that, you know, the psychology field would come over to the money side. Yeah. And, and uh, uh, someone else he was chatting with said, well, I think the financial planners are going to come over to the psychology side. And I guess now it's, you see more of the financial planners coming over, but not, not, not too, too many. But it's just, yeah, it's fascinating how, like, I'm trained as a financial planner and when I took my designation, there's nothing, there, there is like marginal, teaching on behavioral finance. So more mm-hmm. cognitive biases, not, not psychology. So, I mean, that's part of psychology, but like not f- emotions and feelings. Mm-hmm. Isn't behavioral economics too sort of like the, the reason for teaching that to financial advisors is like, here's how all your clients are going to disobey. Yes. <laughs> like yes. Here's the stuff they're yeah. not, gonna, yeah. not going to comply with. And here's how to get out in front of yes. that. I have been to too many training sessions where it's used as a sales tactic. Mm-hmm. So yeah, to your point, I don't, I don't know why they haven't blended further. However, I feel like there's this momentum being built. And that's why it's fun for me as a financial plan, certified financial planner 
chatting with people like yourself, we're trying to bridge that gap more. Mm-hmm. And I love it. I think, you know, Daniel Coleman said 90% of our financial decisions are emotionally driven, but we mm-hmm. look at the numbers all the time instead. So thank you for the work you're doing. Yeah, thank you. And I feel like this is a time to give a shout out to the Financial Therapy Association, which yes. is truly like nerd camp for people who love this intersection and get really excited about it and see the potential for not just like the places where money and thoughts and emotions and behavior, like where those overlap with each other. And and in order to be good at our jobs, we have to kind of know what the other side is doing a little bit, but, but um, more so people who, who see the possibility of what a full integration of those things can look like and how exciting that is. If we, if we think about money in this different way, how much healthier we can be and how much we can increase our own well-being, not just as individuals, couples and families, but even in a broader yeah. sense. Yeah. I'm glad you brought them up. Uh, I came across them about a year ago and it's been fascinating to be part of. And, and I, I also need to say that I, I don't blame the financial planning industry. Everything's evolution and it's evolving right now. It's just, it's okay to make an observation on it. Not judging financial yeah. planning, but that's my observation. And I do see that the financial planning world is being more interested in things like the Financial Therapy Association, which is great. Yes. And as we go down this journey together, I'm excited for the future. Yeah, me too. In our little call we had last week, we talked a bit about positive psychology and utilizing it with our money. Mm-hmm. Our solution based therapy. What maybe can you just touch on? I read on your site the coaching process is solution focused and could be short term. Mm-hmm. How would you explain that to a client? Because I know often when we're talking to clients, they're like, whoa, money issues take a long time to solve. So maybe can you just kind of share with our audience what do you mean by the coaching process is solution focused and can be short term? And how does that apply to our money? So I find that money presents us with a lot of opportunities for discrete focus or Mm -hmm. for sort of like, think of it as like project-based learning Mm -hmm. in a way. So like we may feel like, oh, I'm a mess with money. I'm terrible with money. My money's out of control. Okay. But then I, I would sort of using the tools and principles from earlier, I'd be like, well, let's apply the breaking it down principle or let's (laughs) apply the the baby steps principle here. So we can take a piece that in the initial assessment process, it's like, okay, it feels like one of the things that's that's lacking here is that there's no routine. There's no container mm-hmm. for money in your life. So let's let's look at cash flow as a place to start. And let's just focus on building a practice with cash flow. Like, do you know how your money is coming in? Do you know when it's coming in? How much it is? How are you making decisions about how it goes out? Sometimes we do things like there may be two places where people have like a sort of emotional pressure release valve Mm -hmm. in their spending. So it's like when I am like, I will, I have 200 bottles of nail polish. Not me personally. This is not Mm -hmm. my thing. Um, My thing is jeans, as you can see (laughs) behind me. (laughs) But like, it's nail polish or it's collectibles. or there's, There's something that for a person kind of hooks them in. And is the place of their kind of unconscious emotional spending. So like that, that practice of looking at cash flow becomes its own sort of mini 
project-based learning. Mm. Um, so you are you are paying attention to this behavior that may feel kind of out of control or it feels emotionally driven. We are putting a, a framework on it or a boundary. We are finding different ways to self-regulate emotionally. Like there are all these things that we can practice along with the the very concrete task of just setting up a cash flow management practice. Mm-hmm. Or similarly, like there may be new there may be a, a career change and a disruption in income and sort of like looking at like, well, are there like new client phone calls that you need to make where you are incorporating like how to tell the story of this career transition and like breaking that down into its its different components, like putting, like using what I do is I, I kind of, I call it balancing the what and the how. So like, with the short-term solution focus, like we are, we identify a problem or a goal and then we practice on the how side, what's Mm -hmm. the healthy way to build good behavioral and um, emotional self-regulation practices as we're working on that what piece of it. And I actually like this. So, so short-term work can be like, you know, three sessions and we're done, or it can be like, we work on this for a little while and then you live your life and then something else happens down the road and you kind of want to use that same sort of framework to just re-engage on another Mm. sort of project or goal. And we can, so I I work with people really flexibly. This is not like once a week on the couch for the rest of your life. Like I want my clients to learn and to own their learning as opposed to just rent it from me once a week. Oh, wow. That is a really good saying. Not just rent it from you. <laughs> yeah, those short wins create so much momentum. And then again, build that agency in ourselves to be like, ah, I can do this. Yeah. Okay. So let's imagine that you are in LA or New York. I know mm-hmm. you have both lived in both cities or it yep. could be anywhere. You're at this beautiful place. You're 95 years old, looking back at your life. And you are tasked with writing a letter to your children's children about what you've learned on how to coexist with money, to have a healthy relationship with money. What would that letter say to your children's children? Oh my goodness. I love this question so much. It would say paying attention to your money is a way of paying attention to all the parts of you Mm. and telling yourself the truth about who you want to be and what you want your life to be. And it's a way of, there's a book I love called A Beautiful Constraint, because I love that the idea of of having boundaries, having constraint actually is a way of sort of holding, creating cohesion and focus. And so, for example, like it's really hard to want to do mission-driven work which may not be highly compensating and to still have really expensive tastes Mm -hmm. or to want a a very luxurious lifestyle. So this is a place where there's tension between goals. And I would, if I was writing this letter to my children's children to say like, to lean into that tension Mm. and say like, which of these really comes forward to you? And can you find a way to love the life that you have that's not one where you get everything that your heart desires and to to allow that process to lead you into truly having the best life that you can have in the time that you have to be alive on this planet. Thank you. That is a good letter. 
Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go say exactly that to my 13-year-old, and she's going to go roll her eyes at me so yeah. hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe you got to write it down. Yeah. Well, we've got it recorded, so... Um... <laughs> I just really like this whole idea and it's kind of a theme that you brought up as we wrap up now is paying attention to those areas that need attention and who knows what lessons it can unlock. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with me. I know um, we all have busy schedules and time is finite. So you gave us some time today. So thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you joining us today on the podcast. I really loved our conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in this week. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Amanda. I encourage everyone to head over to Amanda's website. Her blog is great. You could read her blog post on that infamous $19,000 haircut and much more wonderful content on her website. Well, until next time, have a fantastic week.